Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Al, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Ryan. I'm looking forward to a nice conversation. Okay, so you have several books, and we've already talked about getting you on for a future book, uh, which I'm excited to talk about in a few months. But today, this recording is on March 1st, so this has just been released. You have a new book out, so maybe unpack the book, the title, and why this book now. Well, the title of the book is Sealed of Corpses. The subtitle is Arthur St. Clair and the Death of an American Army. And it's about the campaign in 1791 by General Arthur St. Clair in the Northwest Territory and the horrific catastrophe of a battle that he waged against the Indians on November 4th, 1791. Okay, so let's set the table here. Um, what's going on in 1791? Why? What's the buildup to this battle? What's, what's going on in the world? Well, the Americans had won the revolution, and as a result of that, they had basically won the Northwest Territory, which is now the Midwest. And the Indians uh, were a little opposed to the white men coming in and taking over their domain that they had been living in for centuries. So the idea was the Americans would send an army to defeat any kind of Indian organization that existed in the Northwest Territory so they could make this property and land uh, readily accessible and free for settlers to come in and begin to build up uh, that portion of what would be the United States. In 1790, the, the Washington administration, which was in its first term, uh, sent an army under Josiah Harmer to attack the Indian villages and Confederacy that was located at what was called Kikianga or Three Rivers, which is now the site of Fort Wayne, Indiana. In 1790 in October, Harmer was basically got his butt kicked by the Indians and withdrew to the Ohio River. So in an ability, you know, so in an opportunity to um, kind of overcome that stigma and embarrassment to the Washington administration, they decided to try again in 1791 under General Arthur St. Clair, who had been a sort of average, maybe below average general in the revolution. But at the time, he was the governor of the Northwest Territory. So George Washington thought that would be a perfect combination of someone who had military experience and had a lot of experience with uh, the territory that he was going to uh, campaign through. Okay, so let's unpack that for a second. The, the colonies have won the Revolutionary War. They fought a, I guess you would think, going into it, perhaps a superior army or more highly trained army. They come out of that battle-hardened, experienced and they're losing to the, the 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 local Indians. So two things. One, what awareness did the locals have of what had been going on? Were they familiar with the terms, I guess, that the, the U.S. and British had come to? Did they understand, like, hey, they're now claiming ownership of this? Uh, and then B, how is it that they were able to get the, the first victory in, in uh, 1790? Well, to begin with, uh, when the British and Americans signed their peace treaty, uh, they did it by themselves. They excluded the Indians. They didn't think the Indians were uh, enough of a of a uh, some sort of uh, oh, what's the best way to describe it? They were just not a nation in their own eyes, so they weren't allowed to come and have anything to do with the treaty, not even any input of any kind, even though they were the ones who lived in the country at the time. 
the the thing about Josiah Harmer was the same thing that will develop later with the General St. Clair is the army was trained by the manual that was used during the revolution, which meant they fought European style. They wanted to line up in lines. They wanted to fire volleys. Uh, the Indians fought just like every other um, every other society that's trying to hold their territory uh, against an overwhelming force. They fought from behind trees, logs, rocks. Their idea of a victory was to capture a couple scouts, kill a few soldiers here and there. They did not think in terms of a large overwhelming battle as had been fought in the revolution. Okay. And so whose fault is it that the manual hadn't been updated? Because to me, it seems quite obvious, um, obviously with the benefit of hindsight, but but even then it seems that if you're thinking, Hey, you're going to fight the red coats, you know, (laughs) you're going to fight the way that you described perhaps, but if you're going to go fight, um, the Indians, then they're probably going to fight a little different and this might not work. So was it an oversight? Was it overconfidence? Like how do they go to battle with this glaring hole in their attack strategy? Well, I think generally battles are and wars are always fought as if they were the last one. They don't, they don't keep up with contemporary uh, decisions or uh, technology. Uh, a perfect example, other than this, would be after World War II, the United States bulked up its tank force because they thought they would be fighting Russian tanks in Europe. But then the first war really that we go to after Korea is Vietnam, where, you know, you don't use tanks in a jungle. So basically, the people who had won the, the revolution had never been out on the frontier fighting Indians, so they had no idea what to expect. They just did what they knew, which, which is, is sad but true. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah, it's kind of stunning because, you know, um, at this point, colonies have been around for what three, was it three hundred years at this point? Right, no, six, from the sixteen hundreds when they started. Uh, well, well, I'm thinking. So when did Columbus? Columbus. What fourteen ninety two, right? That yeah, was fourteen ninety two. Uh, yeah, so so it's well, I, the, American, the, Indian... the American colonies started in the, in the sixteen hundreds. Yeah. So, uh, well, the, I guess I had... is that the the first Western interaction with the Indians would have go back to fourteen ninety two. The colonies would have come right. along later. So it would seem that there would there would be this database of at least learned knowledge of how these conflicts would have happened, dating back to. The first, not the first interaction necessarily resulted in war, but this you would have a long, multiple generation history. Even if you started with the colonies of how they fought wars, and so it's it's kind of stunning that 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 that's been lost. Or was there not that many conflicts prior to the Revolutionary War? And I'm, I'm confused on on that because I would just think God, you you should have enough information on on how to fight that type of a war. Well, the the last uh, conflict between uh, Britain. Or between Britain and France was the French and Indian War, where the Americans were essentially part of the British army and learned the British tactics and fought that way. Although the beginnings of a, a new type of warfare had started with like Rogers Rangers, who basically were scouts that went out uh, in small parties attacked the French, sort of like the Indians had done over their entire, you know, lifetimes. So it was coming, but it wasn't there yet. And the, I think just because the the Americans had done so well in the revolution and proved themselves better than, you know, the British empire, which basically ruled the world, um, they could take on Indians without any trouble. Okay. So Washington in uh, 1790, dispatches they get beat they come back did they was there a sit down a lessons learned session like like, how does the mistake go into 1791 and happen at such a catastrophic scale because they didn't learn anything um josiah harmer after his defeat at 
Kikianga came back and remained at Fort Washington, which was the base of operations for the entire Northwest Territory for months and months and months before he even left and went to Philadelphia to report in person to President Washington. So most of what had transpired was just by correspondence. And the problem with correspondence, it would take somewhere between four, five, or six weeks for anything to go from the Northwest Territory to the nation's capital and then turn around and come back. So by the time somebody in the, in the Northwest Territory would get new orders based on old information, it would be as long as three months down the road. So there was no uh, immediate uh, conversation or connection between the commanding officer, which was Washington or the Secretary of War, uh, with their generals in the field. So how, how far is it from the first one to the second one, from 1790 fight to the 1791 fight? Uh, the 1790 was Josiah Harmer. Uh, St. Clair is the next year. Yeah, but like, is that like uh, six months, nine months, like a year in time? Like how far? Uh, it's just a, just a little over a year. Okay. Okay. So there's, so despite the fact that you have these lags in communication, there was the ability to get this message even in 1790, 1791 back to the corporate headquarters and back to the secretary of war or whomever and to dissect it. Right. Right. The, I think the only thing that was done as a result of Harmer's defeat was the Washington administration essentially decided, Hey, we're going to need a bigger army. You know, they thought we don't need to change the tactics. We'll just send more men. So that's uh, exactly what they did. They, they raised an army that was basically a national army because it was from every original state except the Carolinas. And Maine was still a part of Massachusetts. Vermont was just added to the United States in 1791. So they were exempt from uh, providing troops. But to that were added what is now Kentucky and Tennessee, which at the time were still parts of Virginia and North Carolina. And is this, um, I'll send you all fly. We we were um, talking to a historian about Napoleon yesterday and just, you know, how he, one of the things that came up was how he described a certain battle that he lost and he blamed it on the weather. And the historian was arguing that if you go look at the weather, that wasn't the factor. Napoleon was just making an excuse, um, at least in the written correspondence. You, you said that Washington and company believed that a larger force could fix this problem. Is that because Harmer doesn't take proper responsibility for what happened or is it just hubris? Like, like, is he not actually describing to them, Hey, we need to fight a different way because it seems that that should have been from his perspective, um, what he communicated back. Well, one of the, one of the problems there was that Harmer had a court of inquiry based upon his, his loss, but as probably still uh, in effect, Today, the army likes to cover its own butt. So uh, Harmer was essentially uh, acquitted of any malfeasance or uh, stupidity. And um, they didn't feel like it was necessary to change the, uh, the tactics. Okay, so Harmer is discredited, basically. Um, 1791 rolls around. It's been almost a year has there been any talks with the Indians to peace treaties? I know you mentioned with the British, they, they omitted them, but at this point, was there any kind of ambassador or someone sent dignitary like, Hey, we want to strike a deal with you guys or had Washington made up his mind. It's forced only to solve this problem. Well, the Washington administration had sent some embassies to the Indian nations, but uh, emboldened by what they had done with Harmer, they thought, well, we'll, we'll just, settle down and uh, defend our country and uh, they can send as many soldiers as they want. We'll just kill them all. I mean, that was the Indian uh, attitude. So they would not even meet with the embassies that uh, or the peace embassies that uh, Washington sent out to 
affect some sort of treaty. And so from Washington's standpoint, they've won the Revolutionary War. They've signed this deal with the Brits. This is, for all intents and purposes, U.S. territory. Um, the Indians won the first battle, tried to negotiate with them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even talk to him. What was he willing to give them? Do we know? Not much. Um, he was, he was a, a, a typical American of the time. Um, I guess you would now say he was not, a, a big fan of the indigenous people. He, he just looked on them as an impediment to growing the country out into new territory where uh, there was abundant land for anyone who wanted to be a farmer. Um, there were rivers that uh, went into the Northwest Territory, particularly the Ohio, where there was easy access and then they could go up the streams and rivers that emptied into the Ohio uh, to get to some of the best farmland in the country, still some of the best in the country. So he uh, he just uh, looked on them as more of an impediment and he probably would have signed any kind of treaty and then in typical American fashion probably would have uh, negated it over a number of years. Yeah, we had on um, a historian a while back talking about um... Oh gosh, it's the, um, is it the Lakotas? I think I can't remember um, talk about some of their stuff. And you look at some of those old treaties and how they're written and how they're violated and stuff. It's, it's, um, you can see how the Indians might be suspect of striking a deal. You know? yeah, it's almost, it's almost like the treaties are written to be violated within a few years down the road. So yeah, <laughs> the Indians and, and, I, you know, you, you have to feel sorry for the Indians. You have to kind of be on their side because they had done nothing wrong. They really had, the, well, especially the Indians in the Northwest Territory had done nothing as far as the revolution was concerned. They had no no uh, dog in that fight. And all they wanted to do was just continue to live where they've always lived. And so how much interaction was there with the Brits or the the U.S. I mean, was there prior to this uh, battle that's about to happen over the past you know hundred so years, whatever? They're in this rich farmland. Had there been times where they worked well with the uh, the colonies and stuff, or had they never really been in communication? And uh, what was their perspective of? Uh, you said they didn't fight in the, the the war, but how do they view the colonies? I don't think they even had much. Uh, of a view of the colonies, their direct interaction with white settlers was in in what is now Kentucky at that time was part of Virginia. They looked on uh, those white settlers as a source of horses, mules, cattle, uh, anything that would uh, be, could be used for food, anything that could be used for uh, the women. Uh, definitely, you know, if you if you were a woman, uh, if you had a choice between cooking in a clay pot or an iron or steel vessel, what would you take? You, you know, you don't break the iron or steel. So uh, by taking things home to their women, uh, not only did they look good and probably get rewarded in some fashion that I won't go into, but they uh, uh, that was that was like a, a like. For the Indians in the Northwest Territory, going to Kentucky was like going to the 7-Eleven. You know, you could get pretty much anything you wanted there. Okay, so how long do we know, do we think at least, that the Indians were in the Northwest Territory? Oh, the Indians had been there forever. Um, they, a, a lot of the Indians had been pushed out uh, by the Iroquois when they made a big push along the... Uh, uh, Great Lakes. Some of them had gone as well. The, the Miami, which basically settled in Fort Wayne um, later, had been pushed as far away as Upper Michigan and Wisconsin. So there was a big vacuum here in like the 1600s, early 1700s, that the Indians came back in and 
this became their uh, their native land as as far as they were concerned. Okay, so this is a land that had been held for a long period of time. It wasn't a bunch of um, fighting amongst Indians or settler, settlers or whatever. It's pretty well established that they they possess this thing for a, a, a long period of time and are the predominant um, holders, if you will, to this territory. Yeah, it was definitely Indian territory the whole time. There was just some interaction where one one tribe one tribe or nation would become more powerful than the other and push them out for a while, but then the tide would turn and then they would be pushed out themselves and a, a lot of that going on. But uh, it was definitely Indian territory the whole time. And so, what are the tribes um, that kind of make up this area? Um, for you know, in uh, in does it in the seventeen ninety seventeen ninety one is it is it just one or two tribes? How many tribes is it? Is it? The the main tribes uh, that were being uh, allied against St. Clair were the Miami, the Shawnee, and the Delaware. There were also other other minor tribes or tribes that came as far away as, um, like along the, like Michigan. You know, they they basically heard there was going to be another fight, so they came hundreds of miles to be part of it because again. It was a chance for the Indian men to prove their valor and their courage, as well as, if they're successful, get a lot of goods to take home to the family. Okay, and so you mentioned a minute ago that they had been going to the the 7-Eleven trading in Kentucky whatnot. As far as weapons go, are most of the Indians equipped with guns, horses, et cetera, or is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is there a significant disadvantage um, from a weaponry, weaponry standpoint? I think probably the weaponry was equal, if not slanted more in the Indian favor. Uh, the weapons that were issued to St. Clair's Army were uh, old Revolutionary War French Charleville muskets that had been in storage for, well, since the end of, of the Revolution. So uh, they were to the, they well they were they were basically just smoothbore muskets. They had no front sights because nobody aimed. You just pointed your musket at uh, a, you know the enemy because you're shooting in a, a line and it's more the mass of bullets than it is individual bullets that uh, impact the enemy. So uh, I think there were a few. Indians who had still had bows and arrows, but the vast majority of the Indians had either rifles, which was a step up from the smoothbore muskets or muskets that uh, they had either acquired through victories over small parties or they had um, gotten through trade with either French or British traders. Okay. And so let's talk numbers. Just raw numbers of troops, raw numbers of Indians, as we go into seventeen the battle in 1791. Well, one of the things that I was able to find was the uh, morning report for St. Clair's army on the morning of the battle. So we know exactly what his uh, force consisted of. And it was just a hair over 1,600 men. But included in that total, you have to include uh, uh, wives, uh, traders, all the hangers-on that follow an army wherever it goes, which brings the total of um, Americans with the army up to somewhere around 2,000 total. As far as the Indians, that would just be a guess. They left no records, and uh, I would say just as an estimate on my part, somewhere between maybe 16, 1800. I think it was a little smaller than uh, St. Clair's force, but uh, yeah, that's, that's probably about as close as anybody could come. Oh, so it's, it's not a, it's not an instance though, where the Americans are walking in outgunned and outnumbered significantly. They might be slightly outgunned, but the numbers are basically the same. And so um, neither side, if you're just looking at a raw number standpoint, seems to have a huge competitive advantage. 
Yeah, the uh, the Indians uh, won this battle by their tactical skill, uh, not by overwhelming numbers and a, a, and a, a you know an advantage in firepower. St. Clair's army had uh, a number of cannon. I think there were eight cannon there in in the in the fight, but they were basically almost useless. Um, well, first of all, the Indians knew what cannons were, and nobody stood in front of a cannon. Um, if they saw a cannon pointing there that way, you know they were either behind a tree, a, a rock, or moved. So, and and during the uh, the the battle itself, it seems as though all of the cannon were not ranged properly. And a lot of the rounds went into the trees uh, over the Indians. So all the uh, the cannon were doing was showering the uh, the enemy with splinters and sticks in many cases. Okay. And so you mentioned the morning report. The battle was, was all on one day, correct? It was began and ended in the space of three hours. And it was conducted essentially in the space of three and a half football fields laid end to end. Okay. So set the, set the geography for us. I mean, you've given us a, a picture of where it's at in the country, but the battlefield, is it hard to ingress, egress? Is it mountainous, flat rivers? Like what are we, what are, what are they walking into on the battlefield here? Well, most of the area was forested in this case, the main army fought from what we what you would call maybe a, a small plateau that was was clear of uh, trees. But before they uh, went to bed that night, their orders were always to clear the space. So any um, any bushes, any shrubs, anything like that inside the camp was cut down and thrown outside, so that they could move around within the camp if necessary. That was uh, that was where that was about the only thing that General St. Clair did that was was correct during this whole whole campaign was to have a, a camp where people could move about the uh, I don't know. I, I could I could give you a list of probably 24 things that he did wrong. I don't think he did anything right. Um, well, just just as an example. He he never should have been commanding an army anyway. He suffered terribly from gout. And essentially when uh, the day or two before the battle, they were carrying, the soldiers were carrying their general in a litter because he couldn't walk, he couldn't ride a horse. So uh, this is not the kind of uh, vitality that you want from a commanding officer. and. To make it even worse, his adjutant general, Winthrop Sargent, was also suffering from gout, but he had figured out how to relieve his gout. Every night before he went to bed, he filled his boots with cold water so that when he got up, put his boots on, his feet felt better. And that's kind of a, uh, I don't know, do-it-yourself cure, but uh, for him it worked. I don't know if it was physical or mental, but anyway, he was happy with it. Hey, if it, if it gets you in the horse in the morning, <laughs> so be it. <laughs> yes, I guess that's true. So they, so November 3rd, they've cleared the area. The, the one thing is you said they, they did right. They wake up November 4th. Who fires the first shot? Well, the main army was camped where the battle was fought. They had several hundred militia that had come as reinforcements from Kentucky. They did not want the Kentuckians to blend with the regular army. So the Kentuckians had a, um, a smaller camp uh, beyond the Wabash River. So the Indians attacked the, uh, the smaller Kentucky camp just after after uh, dawn on the morning of, of November 4th, the uh, Kentuckians were totally unprepared. Uh, they got off a few shots, maybe killed an Indian or two, 
but basically were, their camp was overrun and they raced for St. Clair's main camp across the river. As they, as they spliced across the river, there was what was called a front guard of probably 50 to 60 men. I, I can't tell you right now, but they were all primed, loaded, and waiting for the Indians. As the Indians pursued the Kentuckians, this front guard fired into the Indians as they attacked and stopped them cold. As the Indians sought shelter, the Kentuckians got into the, uh, the main camp where they provided not a whole lot of help. Uh, a lot of them just uh, were glad to be alive. And um, some of them had lost their weapons on their retreat. So um, it was basically down to the regular army and the, uh, the levies that had been organized. He had uh, four regiments, essentially. So you said they were caught off guard. When were they preparing to attack? Was it going to be a few more days or were they going to protect, attack later that day? I mean, it's hard to imagine they're caught off guard if they're mounting for war, but it sounds like they weren't mounting for war at that point. Well, the problem was uh, St. Clair was lost. He had stopped and made his camp along the Wabash. He assumed it was the St. Mary's River. He thought he was 15 miles away from Kikianga when it was actually 55 miles away. He had planned on making maybe a two-day march and then attacking, uh, not realizing that he was so so far away from his objective that he was he was lost in the wilderness. There's no other way to describe it. He had had a surveyor mark out his route as they got as far as uh, Fort Jefferson, which they built in as a way station in in October. But then from then on, nobody had ever been to that Indian country before. All they did was follow an Indian path that they thought kind of went in the right direction. So we'll just follow it and maybe that'll take us to the Indians. Well, it would have taken them to the Indians, but not nearly as fast as St. Clair he would, would think they would. Yeah, so when you say he made a lot of mistakes, you're you're not exaggerating. <laughs> Certainly not. Um, another one of the mistakes that was made that was uh, highly consequential was all of the, well, everything the Army needed needed to be shipped overland from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. From Pittsburgh, it went down the Ohio River to Fort Washington, which is now Cincinnati, and then was carried overland. Uh, to follow the army. Well, on one of those trips down the Ohio River, one of the flatboats carrying a lot of his gunpowder sank. Uh, They were able to recover it, I think, within a day, but obviously a lot of powder had been damaged and nobody bothered to tell St. Clair. So there there are numerous examples of men firing weapons that basically had no impact on, on the enemy. So they make the retreat and there's a slight reprieve is, I think is, is basically how you described it. They, they yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. And, and, and then, and then the, the onslaught continues. Was there ever a moment in which the Americans thought they might could turn the tide of this or was it pretty much they realized from the beginning they had bitten off more uh i don't think they ever had a chance and they probably realized that um as as soon as the indians were briefly stopped what they began to do was spread their forces completely around st Clair's camp so the american army was essentially encircled the during the, the majority of the fighting. And again, they're firing volleys at Indians they can't see. And the Indians uh, who carry their own ammunition, so they're very you know, judicious about using it, they're just taking their time and you know, plugging away when they have a good shot. So uh, the, the camp starts to fill up with 
with the bodies of men who have died or uh, been injured, making it even more difficult to move around where St. Clair had, had made sure they had the access because they cleaned out the campsite. So it was just, um, it was an Indian fight and win from the very beginning. Yeah, that's why I was asking earlier about the about the terrain because I was curious how they couldn't escape. But but they're they're, they're surrounded. You said, um, and so the Indians seem to have a pretty good idea of where they're coming, where they're coming from, where they're staying at. And you said that they're kind of lost, and so they they, they even if the powder in the guns is better. They're, they're just not prepared on a lot of, on a lot of fronts. I mean, there's, there's other mishaps that, that, that pile up against them, but you know, if the enemy understands how it can surround your, your main camp and you're not prepared to fight war, fight the war, then, you know, you are at a huge, huge tactical disadvantage. Yeah. Another, another problem that uh, St. Clair created for himself was that there were scouts out around the army as it marched North. But as they would encounter, you know, a few Indians in the distance on horseback or whatever, they'd bring those reports back to St. Clair and St. Clair would say, oh, uh, those are probably just hunting parties. Uh, You know, they don't know anything about what our plans are. So, you know, we'll just dismiss that. But the whole time they were just scouting and watching everything the the American army did, including how they camped every night because they camped what St. Clair called a hollow oblong and what we would call a rectangle, like the, the football fields late end to end. So the Indians knew more about the American army than the American army knew about the Indians by far. They definitely had the intelligence advantage. So how does St. Clair escape? How did what? How does St. Clair escape? Well, after about three hours had developed and uh, he had lost by this time about 50% of his entire army. One side of of the hollow oblong had collapsed and the army had kind of grouped on the one end. And it was like a mob milling around. There was nobody really in charge. Uh, everyone was frightened out of their minds, but then there there developed after one of the I think it was one of the bayonet charges that the American army tried but accomplished nothing left sort of a hole in one corner of St Clair's camp, and everybody just kind of said oh let's that's a way out let's go that way and a few of them started, but the vast majority didn't start until somebody yelled out, that's the way home. And then everybody who was still able to run or walk or get out of there in any way possible uh, took off as fast as they could through that hole. The Indians basically fell back because they were surprised by uh, this tactic because they had never expected the the Americans to do anything positive. So, Half of half of St. Clair's army was able to escape, and the Indians pursued them for as far as six miles. And we know that, for example, because one of the uh, one of the fleeing soldiers was an ass- assistant surveyor who had marked their trail, and he knew that he had passed the uh, six mile mark when the Indians had stopped following them. Any any reason why the Indians stopped following them? tired fatigue i mean is it did in their mind they ran them out it was probably that but i think the vast majority of the indians had stayed in the camp and looted it Mm. and the the guys that were uh, running after the uh, the fleeing americans finally realized that hey they're getting all the good stuff um maybe we should go back and you know get our own share so they they did that but when they came back they basically tortured and killed every American that was left in the camp, no matter what shape they were in. 
a few men were taken prisoners just so the uh, the Indians could take their uh, their captives home to their wives and say, well, you know, I didn't get you any blankets, but I brought you a slave to do your work. So they uh, they came out pretty well at home, too. Do we know what happened to those slaves? Were they eventually released, killed? Do we know? Uh, probably a, a number of them died that we no, don't know about, but there's, I think there's at least somewhere between 20 and 30 that I was able to identify that were later released after Anthony Wayne's victory and, uh, the Indians were required to turn over any captives that they had taken. Mm. So earlier you gave us a number 1600 to 2000. And you said that number included the soldiers, the fighting men, but there's also the the people that were with them, women. Yeah, the non the non combatants, right? The non combatants. How did they fare during this this battle? In various ways, uh, there were cases of the women. Uh, well, like I had mentioned earlier, the uh, the Kentuckians weren't much help when they came uh, into the camp. Uh, they, they, a lot of them hid behind tents, under wagons, any, any place they could find some shelter. And the women, uh, a number of them, used rocks and uh, uh, fire and branches to try to push them out to make them fight again. Uh, I don't know that you would be called encouraging. It was more like uh, humiliating them into fighting. A number of the uh, non-combatants uh, did fight as if they were soldiers under under no command, though they were just on their own uh, because there were plenty of, of weapons and ammunition lying around. They could just pick up whatever they wanted. There's a case of, uh, of one of those non-combatants who fired a musket until uh, he ran out of ammunition, and then he picked up an axe and was swinging the axe at... Uh, at the Indians as they got close to the camp. So everybody did what they could uh, up to a point. And then the Kentuckians and I'm sure uh, a number of the American soldiers kind of lost their nerve and were overwhelmed and uh, were no longer effective soldiers. So we started off with 1970, the failure there. The I don't think it was a court martial, but you, there's some term a trial you you alluded to, um, or something like trial. He sounded like, um, and he was you know not punished, not reprimanded. Um, what was the fallout here? Was it any different? <laughs> yeah, it had uh, great implications for even today's government because the first congressional investigation was launched to in inquire into why uh, St. Clair had been beaten so badly. And uh, like the, the uh, congressmen, you know, held their inquiries. Uh, and in typical congressional fashion, not only did they set the standard for a congressional inquiry, they set the standard for not coming up with any kind of resolution. So uh, it was, there, there was a lot of information came out, but none of it was to the point where they thought they could uh, find General St. General St. Clair culpable of any malfeasance in his role as commander of the army. As I said before, some things never change. <laughs> and that's true. I mean, if you look at history, there it is. Some <laughs> over things. and over. Oh, man. If you could go back and ask, I don't know, St. Clair or whomever, one question, and they would answer it honestly. Who would you ask, and what would it be? Uh, this, is, this is not what you're expecting, but I would, I would want to go back and talk to Captain James Bradford and ask him about his monkey. <laughs> we uh, haven't talked to him 45 minutes in. A monkey hasn't come up, so yes. Okay. I was not expecting that. Well, I, this one's coming out of left field, maybe. But um, Bradford, during the uh, revolution, somehow acquired a monkey. I don't know what species, what size. But 
he brought the monkey along when he went to the frontier and he took him along on St. Clair's campaign. He was a favorite with the soldiers because Bradford had made a uniform for him. No pants, just, just the jacket. Just the jacket. <laughs> you, know, you understand the pants problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, the monkey's name was Jacko, and he loved to hang around the doctors and surgeons and watch them as they cured the soldiers. And one of the things that he had noticed was that oh, those doctors kind of cure these people with injections. It's kind of neat. Well, one night, he Jacko is in the cookhouse with the cook and a soldier who's got a, a problem with his, uh, his lungs, whether it's an abscess or a growth or something like that. Well, the cook goes to sleep flat on his face. And he's a cook like you would see in the Beetle Bailey cartoons, you know, like uh, fat, sloppy, uh, spots all over his apron. So anyway, he's he's laying there sound asleep. Jacko was just walking around doing what monkeys do when they're bored, which I, I didn't know. And the soldier with the, the bad lung is, is asleep. Well, during uh, the night sometime, the cook passes an enormous amount of noxious fumes. And Jacko thinks... Oh my God, he's sick. So what does Jacko do? He goes to the shelf, takes a funnel, and jams it into the cook's rear end to to, to inject him like he had seen the doctor do. Okay. The cook jumps up screaming murder and murder. Jacko's all excited about this, and he's just jumping around and flailing himself and doesn't know what to do and thought he'd help the cook and Meanwhile, the soldier wakes up, sees what's going on, just laughing his butt off. And as it turns out, he coughs up the problem in his lungs. And the end of the, pro- uh, the, end of the story is that Jacko had actually cured a soldier by watching the doctor perform <laughs> injections on other soldiers. <laughs> okay, yeah. When I asked you that question... I had a handful of things that you might say in mind. I had a handful of questions that I might want to ask. I didn't expect a monkey story. I'm going to say that right now, but it was great. (laughs) It it is great. I mean, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that I love to find. Um, And and the, the the great thing is I, I live in Fort Wayne and our library has the second largest genealogical collection in the country. So people come from around the world to research their ancestors. Mm-hmm. I used their collection to research this monkey. Oh, wow. What happened to the monkey? Do we know? Yep. Um, Bradford was killed during the battle. And when all of the uh, the soldiers broke out at the end, Jacko did what he always did. He followed the soldiers. He got to Fort Jefferson, the, the first fort on the way back to the Ohio River. But uh, they didn't have enough food to even supply the soldiers. So essentially, Jacko uh, starved to death. So maybe, oh, I maybe thought you were somewhere, maybe somewhere out there, there'll be an archaeologist in the future that finds a row of buttons from what looks like a really small soldier, and wonder <laughs> what the heck is that? Oh my gracious! That, well, I, I've, I'm sure you've never heard that before. No, no, I did not. Listen, I expected there to be Indians, Americans fighting, death, tragedy. You know, who knows? I just didn't expect a monkey story. That's that's tremendous. That is tremendous. Okay. Well, one of the things, well, I I was a sergeant in the military police when I was in the army. Mm -hmm. And my attitude is I'd like to write about the men who do the work, not the men who get the praise. Mm. So I try to include as much as I can about the enlisted men. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the things that has Im- impressed people that have read my book up to this point was my dedication, which reads, this book is dedicated to every poor bastard who has placed his life in the hands of an officer who proved unworthy of that trust, which <laughs> sums up not only uh, General St. Clair, but probably 
thousands of commanders over the years. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I'm always struck when I watch uh, band of brothers and you'll watch the interviews of the, mm-hmm. of the, uh, of the men as they're, they're all dead now, but towards the end of their life talking about the officers and how they make a very fine distinction between the ones that were good and the ones that they just had no respect for. And so it's a, um, it's as I, I never was in the military, but just watching those interviews, it seems to be a, a kind of a hardline stance where there's good officers and bad officers and the bad ones people really, really don't like. And it's, re- it's really easy to tell the difference. Yeah. Okay. Now, well, we are going to link to the book. We're going to link to your website as well. Um, you have other books um, that people can find there. Where Anywhere else you want us to send people to? Mm. Mm. Uh, what's the thing? Uh, the other place where Don put Twitter, Facebook, Facebook, or your website? No, it's um, no, it's 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 the hmm? YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. There's a, YouTube. a yeah. Okay, I see it right here. I will link to your YouTube as well. Okay, yep, got that pulled up. And we'll link to that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Well, I enjoyed it too. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.